The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Elephants could become extinct this century, so time is ticking, because despite being one of the most iconic animals on the planet, there's still so much we have to learn about them and from them. Secrets of the Elephants captured some extraordinary and groundbreaking stories to reveal just how intelligent, wise, sensitive and emotionally complex elephants really are. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Lucinda Axelson, executive producer of Secrets of the Elephants. Lucinda Axelson is the executive producer for Oxford Scientific Films. Her credits include China, Nature's Ancient Kingdom, Serengeti, Wild Brazil, Elephant Diaries, Elephants of Samburu, and Meerkat Manor. As you can tell from her credits, Lucinda is quite a globe trekker. And as you can also tell from her credits, she's no newcomer to making documentaries about elephants. Secrets of the Elephants is part of a series on National Geographic. The first was on Secrets of the Whales. Coming up is Secrets of the Octopus. But Secrets of the Elephants is the one we're focusing on today in this interview. And it is a delightful four-part series. I will confess I don't watch a lot of these kinds of programs. This one I found fascinating and of superior quality. It really gripped me through all four episodes, some of the scenes, some of the anecdotes, some of the exposition about what elephants do in the wild and in different environments in the wild, whether it's the rainforest, the desert, the savanna. It's amazing what these creatures can do to adapt to some extraordinarily difficult environmental and man-made conditions. I learned so much about elephants and it left me incredibly moved as well. These creatures are every bit as intelligent, if not more so than we are. I encourage you to watch the series, which is Emmy nominated, and I hope you enjoy our interview. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter, also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Lucinda Axelson, executive producer of Secrets of the Elephants. Lucinda Axelson, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for being here and congratulations on the two Emmy nominations for your series, Secrets of the Elephants. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. So Secrets of the Elephants is a limited series which is being shown on National Geographic. Prior to that, I know there was a Secrets of the Whales limited series, and I believe there's one coming about octopi as well. What links these series together thematically? Why Secrets? I think we wanted to really get into the latest science. There's so much research being done on these incredible creatures, and it's an opportunity to really to showcase the latest information that we have about these animals and then bring it to life. What does that actually mean? We learn some incredible new scientific fact about the animal, but 
what does that mean in reality? So it was an opportunity to really open up the world of these incredible animals and really get into the latest research, not going over the stories that we're familiar with, but what are the stories we don't know? What have we got to learn about these animals? And it was just the most wonderful opportunity to really get into all the latest stories and the latest knowledge and research about, in our case, one of the most incredible animals on the earth, the elephant. And I'm looking forward to getting into some of those stories with you. But before that, I just was curious, with a big project like this, this is four episodes, it spans two continents, many countries. There are multiple producers and executive producers on the series. You're one of them. James Cameron is another executive producer. How does your company, Oxford Scientific Films, get involved and perhaps play the key role in just pulling all this together? Well, we got the gig, so we have to hold the big picture very firmly in our hands. We're responsible for delivering this, ultimately. So we have to have a very clear vision. We have absolutely 100% support from National Geographic Channel, Pamela Carragol and Janet Hanvissering. We're with us every step of the way. So we're talking all the time, we're sharing ideas, we're sharing stories, and we're moving forward very much as a team. It's all about communication with all these things, isn't it? No one person has all the answers. And actually, if you talk, if you share, if you brainstorm, if you kick ideas around, you, you get to a much more interesting and rich end result. So that was very much the approach that we had and that National Geographic and James Cameron's team had, which was to talk, to share, to brainstorm, make it a real team effort. And were you yourself in the field for these shoots or where were you during the production phase? I did get to go in the field, which is one of the places I'm most happy. That and the edit suite, I did, yes. I filmed elephants many times in the past, so I couldn't wait to get out there. I didn't want to completely take over or interfere, but there were a couple of shoots where I felt I could really make a contribution. And you've got to go where you're useful. You can't just, you know, swan along for the ride. You have to go where you feel you can make a real contribution. And there were a couple of shoots where I was able to do that. So yeah, I had the great joy and privilege of going on location. Speaking of joys, one of the joys of this series is the main guide, who is conservationist Dr. Paula Kahumbu. And she is an expert on savanna elephants. And episode one is about these elephants. How did you link up with Dr. Kahumbu, and when you sat down to discuss the series, what were her goals in terms of telling these secrets? One of the first things to say is that Paula is, as you can see, is African. And it's so rare that Africans get to tell the story of their own wildlife, and this has to change. And that was one of the things that National Geographic was wonderful about, suggested her. She's a National Geographic explorer. And it was just non-negotiable. We had to have someone from that country telling the story of their wildlife. She's a world-leading expert, so, you know, why wouldn't you pick her anyway? But there was that added incentive that it was time to have a different kind of voice in these shows. I think natural history filmmaking has had a somewhat colonial attitude to telling the stories from different countries. It's like the white person goes in and tells the story of those animals in that country using predominantly almost exclusively white crews from the UK or from America. That has to change and it is changing. And we're very, very proud to be part of that. It seems like from her just 
own expressions of delight throughout the series that she's getting the opportunity to explore these different environments and different kinds of elephants because she specializes in the savanna elephants. She's in the rainforest with those elephants and in the desert and so on. So what did she learn that maybe she didn't know going into the project that really informed her worldview of elephants? I think she was able to learn so much. I mean, you know, conservation budgets are small and you're lucky to get very far out of your own sort of small field in the world of research and conservation. For her to actually get into the Congo and to see forest elephants for the first time, she'd heard about them. She knew quite a bit about them, but actually when you meet them or when you see them on the ground, it's, it's a whole different experience. And these are hard-won opportunities as well. They're extremely elusive. Poor forest elephants, I mean, they, they've been poached almost into extinction. So they're extremely wary of humans, naturally and understandably. She knew it was going to be a challenge to actually get to see them. So the visceral delight that she felt when she saw her first forest elephant, I'm sure it comes across on screen, but she was so excited to see them. Because, you know, as an expert savanna elephant, she's got this wonderful reference point to this is what elephants look like. And most of us have a, quite a strong idea of what an elephant looks like. But then you go to the forest, they look completely different. Their ears are a completely different shape. They're shorter, they're fatter. They've got these incredibly bright yellow or amber eyes, you know, rather than this normal dark brown eyes. So there were physical differences as well as behavioral differences. And you know, it's, it's wonderful to have that kind of almost like the viewer's reference point as to what we think an elephant is. And then she can then perfectly point out the distinctive differences from her first-hand knowledge. Same in the desert. There they are. They've got longer legs and they've got wider feet and they're skinnier, they're leaner. They've got different types of body shape, basically, and totally different behavior. So again, they're very rare. They're very hard to find. And again, the sort of delight in seeing them and then understanding the behavioral differences, which is very important and absolutely key to the storytelling is the behavioural differences that she witnessed. And then finally she went to Asia and she'd never seen an Asian elephant. And to see these little Bornean pygmy elephants or forest elephants, it just blew her away. In a way, she's a sort of informed version of the audience in terms of her delight and her observations. And she can see things that perhaps we wouldn't obviously notice, but then she becomes our eyes and she becomes our ears and can help us to really understand the differences that we're seeing. So she had this kind of delight in everything that she saw outside of her normal savannah elephants. And that was refreshing and exciting for us, as well as all the knowledge that she brought. In terms of elephant behavior, a big theme of the series is how we as humans would recognize a lot of these elephant behaviors as being what we would describe as human-like. I mean, they, they do exhibit some remarkable behaviors. And in episode one, behaviors around their attitude towards family, their abilities to communicate in very sophisticated ways. Those are just two examples. But would you say that elephants have more in common with humans than almost any other animal? Potentially, yes. It's all a matter of how you see it. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? You can either look at, for differences or you can look for similarities. And there's absolutely no doubt that they are extremely emotionally complex. 
each of them has a very individual personality. So there's no question of saying, well, elephants do this and elephants do that. Yes, there are some general behaviours that go with being a mammal in that place and eating what they eat. But beyond that, it all comes down to personality. And they are all very individual, just as we are, just as humans are. One of the things we really want to get across is you're not talking about an amorphous mass of animals that all do the same thing. You're talking about every single elephant being an individual. We really wanted to get that sort of idea of personality and decision-making across. And I think that's one of the things that we could really relate to. There is a scene within the first episode where one of the beautiful big elephants that we've been filming unfortunately dies and seeing the grief in the families that came to visit him. Over days and days, we staked out the body and night after night, these elephants came and so gently and tenderly touched this elephant's body. And it was, every time I see it, it still makes me want to cry because it was just the most incredible example of how deeply they love each other and how strong their friendships are. Yeah, that scene was remarkable. I had no idea that elephants would go through that kind of ritual, and it clearly is reminiscent of any kind of human culture-based ritual around death and grieving. It's just so unexpected and just touching in just a simple, basic, we would say human way, but now maybe I'll say elephant way. Absolutely right. I think you've summed that up perfectly. As you go about planning to shoot this series, how do you balance the preparation, I'm sure the incredible preparation that's required, with the spontaneity that keeps things fresh and provides that kind of sense of immediacy that I think the audience really craves and really appreciates so much? I think this is the dark heart of wildlife filmmaking. You've got to go to places where you know something's going to happen. You've got to go with a plan. But you have to leave enough space within that plan for what we call the magic to happen. Because often the story you go to get is not the story you end up getting. You end up getting a much better story. Throughout the series, we had shoots that we planned and that delivered, shoots that we planned that didn't deliver, but gave us an opportunity to sink on our feet and do something else. And shoots where we went out without necessarily the most rock solid plan, but saying we want to film these elephants at this time of year and we'll see what happens. As with all these things, you win some, you lose some. But on this series, I have to say, we really got lucky. You can say you make your own luck. (laughs) There's a certain amount of planning, but there is also a certain amount of luck. Yeah, we got really lucky. I can give you some examples. With the desert elephants, we went out there. It was a tough time of year. They've had a five-year drought. Didn't really know what we were going to find. We thought, we'll go out there. It's a good time of year to film them. We'll see what happens. Day one, a baby is born. And there hasn't been a baby that survived in the desert for eight years. They hardly ever have babies. We turn up, first day, baby born right in front of us. It was like, wow, <laughs> okay, that's incredible. And then as when you see the, the series, you'll, you'll find out that, you know, What then happens to that baby 24 hours later is extraordinary and very much speaks to the lives that the desert elephant leads. Just to give a brief summary of what happened. The next morning, so the female that's given birth is her first baby. She's never done this before. So she's all a bit like discombobulated, doesn't really know what she's doing. First thing in the morning, first light, 
the elephants do what they always do, which is they go off and they do their 20 miles, 25 miles, looking for food, looking for water. Matriarch says, okay, six o'clock, sun's up, off we go. And this mother, she first baby's asleep. She doesn't want to wake it. She's probably been up all night with her baby, feeding it, fussing and worrying and everything else. So the herd leave without her. And she's left behind with just a sort of a cousin of hers who's like a sort of nanny for her and stays by her side. And they're like, oh gosh, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? She's left it a couple of hours. So they're heard and well on their way. And so she's now got to catch up with them. But she's got this newborn. She's not even 24 hours old. And suddenly they've got to go on this incredible journey to catch up with the rest of the herd. And you're thinking to yourself, what's the matriarch thinking? Leaving behind this precious baby? One hasn't survived here for so long. They hardly have had babies. What is she doing? But what you then start to realise with the desert elephants is that they have such a tough life. There is no tougher place to be an elephant, in my opinion. It's godforsaken. It's, it's hardly anything to eat. It's hardly anything to drink. So just to stay alive, these elephants have to keep moving. So I think what the matriarch was doing was saying, hey, this is the life of a desert elephant. If your baby isn't strong enough, your baby can't keep up. Best we find out now, eh? Because this is it. And if your baby can keep up and if your baby can catch us up, then hey, that's incredible. You have a strong baby. It's worth the herd investing in that baby and investing in that baby's welfare. So, you know, we had our hearts in our mouths and following this baby all day and this little thing is just going and going and going. I think, how on earth is this baby managing to go this far in one day? And it kept stopping and collapsing. And every time it fell down, we thought, gosh, is it even going to get up again? But it did. And they kept going, kept going. And eventually they caught up with the rest of the herd. And, oh, the greeting they got, it was incredible. It was like, yes, you passed the test. This baby is strong enough. This is the kind of drama that just unfolds in front of you when you least expect it and you've just got to be ready for it so yes you can plan but then you've got to plan for the unplannable <laughs> and just go with it and as I say you've got to leave space for the magic to happen. That was an incredibly magical moment and sequence. Earlier today I was watching a documentary about the news journalist Dan Rather and he was talking about how he got his start at CBS covering the civil rights movement in the United States. And he was deeply moved by what he was reporting on to the extent that there were moments where he was really troubled by what was happening and felt almost a compulsion to act, to do more than just report the news. As I was watching your series prior to that, and I was watching that baby elephant and other scenes as well, it occurred to me these elephants in many situations because of these extreme environments are in danger, almost constant danger. What is the crew's position on helping out, whether that means somehow providing water? I mean, elephants consume a huge amount of water, so I don't know how you do that. But just stepping around the camera and kind of, quote unquote, interfering in the natural environment. I think with elephants in particular, it is quite difficult because obviously they're huge, they're dangerous. They wouldn't let you help them most of the time, certainly not the adults, unless there was something very specific going on. Most of the time, there's this sort of pure, quite purist hands-off situation where, you know, if an animal is dying of starvation, you can't 
feed it because you won't be able to feed it tomorrow and you won't be able to feed it the next day. One day you'll go home. And if that animal hasn't got enough to eat, all you're doing is prolonging its suffering. You've got to be smart about this and think carefully. I mean, if an animal's just trapped in a gully and if all you have to do is get it out of the gully and then it can carry on its life, of course you get it out of the gully. You know, we're human and we care and we love the environment and we love animals. So, you know, in a situation where you can do something simple or, or releasing an animal from a trap or if it's a whale or something, you cut the fishing line that it's tangled in, of course you do that. You wouldn't interfere in a situation where it's not sustainable, where if, like I said, if you feed it or give it water, but tomorrow you can't or the next day or whenever. So I think that we know the lines. You can't not interfere in certain situations. So yeah, we're pretty clear on that. In that situation, if that baby hadn't made it, well, you know, the baby wasn't strong enough and you couldn't, you couldn't interfere in that situation. That's the mother's job. She's a fit, healthy mother. She's got another female with her. If she can't save that baby, then there's no point in you even trying. We know the line. We know the line. It's one of the things you really have to be aware of when you become a wildlife filmmaker is that you're going to see really sad things. And you have to have a strong constitution to deal with that because the natural world is full of sadness and tragedy. Life is, saying that down rather, dealing with human tragedy, it's the same thing. So to be an advocate for wildlife, to be a storyteller for those kinds of stories, you do have to be strong and you have to put your emotions aside while you're working in order to do that. I've seen some very sad things and you just have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and try and do justice to the story, to tell that animal's story or to tell a story that helps it not to happen in the future. In episode three, Rainforest, we see the elephants engaged in an activity called mining. So I'm going to ask you to describe what that is in a second. But what I found interesting about that sequence and others throughout the series is when you made the point of showing us that certain behavior was learned versus inherited. So my question is really, why is it important that you point out the distinctions between those two things? But first tell us what mining is. Mining is in the jungle. One thing that's missing from a rainforest is salt and everybody needs salt to survive. But there is salt in the earth and there are certain places in the forest where you can get to the salt that's locked up in, in the mud. And in the forest, you get what they call salt licks, where, you know, the animals congregate because there's a little bit of salt in the mud. So what these elephants are doing is using their trunks to sort of blow a hole deep in the mud underneath the water. And that helps the minerals to bubble up and to make a sort of salty, minerally soup, which they then suck up in their trunks and swallow. That's what they're doing. They're mining for essential minerals, which literally are life and death to them. So it's not just a nice to have, it's essential for brain and tissues, etc. And in the film, it's described as a learned behavior. Why is it important that we know what behaviors are learned versus inherited? And what can we learn by learning that distinction? When I started this conversation with you, I talked about the fact that animals have personalities and that they're all individuals. They're not born knowing all of this stuff. They're highly intelligent animals and they pass on knowledge to each other. It's one of the things that distinguishes them from other animals is that they are highly intelligent and they can learn from each other and they can teach each other. What you're finding there is that the parents teach the children and then in turn they'll teach their young. So it's, I guess it's a sign of a sophisticated culture that they have, that they can teach each other and learn from each other. And you'll get 
a group of elephants that, you know, are 50 miles away from another group of elephants and will do things completely differently because that's their culture and that's the way they do it. And then a herd down the road will do things differently. Same sort of thing, same end result, but they'll do it their way. And that's because within a family or within a herd or within a region, they've all learned from each other. So it's one of the fascinating things to think about elephants is that they have this ability to teach and to learn from each other and that they have their own culture. In episode four, Asia, there's another incredible scene, which I'll call the fruit raid scene. <laughs> yes. uh, and that's also a situation where elephants are learning to adapt to their environment and basically figure out, I would say, MacGyver, a solution <laughs> to a problem, which is that there's fruit over here that they can't really access unless they figure out a way to get over to that fruit. Can you explain this? scene briefly and talk about why it was such a breakthrough to see what the elephants did. This is classic. This is Asian elephants who are the most intelligent elephants on the planet. They've got a massive brain. They're super smart and they spend a lot of time because Asian elephants live on the most populated continent on earth. They have had to learn how to live with humans and how to live with humans ways. So what you have there is a situation where Previously, uh, Sri Lanka, previously that elephant had been able to roam that piece of land at will, go wherever he wanted to. As a baby, he'd been brought up there. It would have been his playground. It would have been his larder. Then the people move in and the people don't want them roaming through their gardens and frightening everybody and eating their crops and eating their fruit. So they put up this massive electric fence to try and keep the elephants out and in their sort of reserve, safely in their reserve, but please don't come into our gardens and take our food. Totally understandable. So they put up these very powerful electric fences. But the elephants are smart and what they've worked out is that wood does not conduct electricity. I don't know how they worked it out, but they've worked it out. So what they do is they break branches off the trees whack the fence with it, they disable the fence, and then they push it over. And they work as a team so that they can all get the fence down together and it's not all down on one elephant's shoulders. And then what's really, really smart, beyond actually being able to use tools, which, by the way, not very many animals can do, tool use is a real sign of higher intelligence. But once they've done that, they then work out, right, okay, now we have to be really, really quiet. Nobody say anything. Walk on your tiptoes as much as you can, very gently on your feet. Do not speak. Do not rumble. Do not flap your ears. Stay quiet. And they can literally walk silently past people. And people don't even know that there's an elephant three or four meters away from them in the dark because they're just absolutely silent. And then they go and raid the trees and take what they want. Inevitably, <laughs> at some point, Someone's going to hear something and then the dogs get alerted and then the people get alerted and the game's up and they've got to make a run for it. But the ingenuity, the sort of the understanding of human behavior and electricity and how it's conducted, it's phenomenal and speaks so loudly as their intelligence. Dr. Kahumbu says toward the end of the series, elephants are as smart, if not smarter than us. Do you agree with that statement? And what makes you think that? I guess it depends what you call smart, doesn't it? <laughs> I 
You know, is it about creating rockets to go to the moon or streaming platforms or whatever? Or is it about knowing what's really important and how to get what you need from life and not take too much and love each other and care for each other and work out what you need to survive? And what's going to further that aim? And not to do the things that that are going to ruin the planet, ruin your environment and upset the humans around you. If your definition of smart is leading a good and sustainable life that has culture within it, that has learning, that has strong relationships at the heart, yeah, I think maybe they are more intelligent than us. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? But they certainly, I think there's things that they can do that we can't. Their communication systems, I think, are superior to ours because they can communicate with each other in ways that we just don't understand. We don't understand sometimes how an elephant knows what's going on when the other elephant is nowhere to be seen that it's communicating with. So I think there's plenty we don't know about them still because it's unmeasurable. There are more secrets of the elephants out there. There are more secrets, yes. (laughs) But I think for me, the one that sort of stood out to me in terms of the measure of smartness, and Mm. that is a question I asked myself, what is smart when I was watching the film? And I kept coming back to this idea of adaptability, you know, that as we enter these ever more difficult periods of climate change, adaptability is going to be just the number one issue. And elephants throughout your series are shown in situation after situation adapting. I totally agree. And thank you so much for pointing that out. It's absolutely about that. And I think nowhere more so than in Asia. You've got the Bornean elephants whose 40, 50% of their forest has been taken over by palm oil plantations. So you think, goodness, how on earth are they going to live? The food source is gone. It just doesn't make any sense. How can they get around? Because they're not allowed inside the plantations. There are a few elephant-friendly plantations now, and there's some great conservation work being done. But basically, what used to be a massive forest is now just a little strip of forest either side of a river. How are they surviving? Well, they're using the river as a highway so they can get to where they want to go. They know where the various fruiting trees are that they love, but they've also learned that in certain plantations, at certain times of the year when they're replacing older palms with new palms, that the sound of a bulldozer means a dinner bell. It means the old palms are coming down, they'll be planting new ones and they're chipping up these old trees And it's an absolute food bonanza. So they've learned to adapt to totally new food source and a totally different way of getting it. But hey, if that's what we have to do, then that's what we'll do. And they just adapt and adapt and adapt. There's another story which you'll have seen in the Asia episode where in Thailand, there's a very wily old elephant who's called the Don because he's a bit, he runs a bit of a protection racket on this highway. And you've got this wonderful situation where a lot of his forest has been lost to sugar palm plantations. So you've got sugar cane, should I say. And he knows that at certain times of the year, the big trucks will come along with all this wonderful sugar cane on it. And he wants his cut. <laughs> so what he does is he just steps out of the forest completely. You know, he's been waiting there quietly in the, by the side of the road, steps out of the forest into the road and basically says, stop. Stops the truck helps himself to a certain amount of sugar cane, not too much. And that's what's really lovely about him. 
He doesn't take too much. He doesn't wreck the whole truck. He's not upsetting the driver. He's just taking as much as he needs from that truck. And he's got a couple of young apprentices who are learning from him and they come along and they take a little bit too. And then the truck's allowed to go on its way. And it's just the most beautiful example of an elephant who he knows he can't go to the sugar cane plantation, but he really would like to. He's got a certain requirement for calories. He wants to get enough to eat, but he understands human nature and he understands that the truck will stop if he makes it stop. And that if he doesn't take too much, he won't upset anyone. This layer upon layer of intelligence there and adaptability. He's just worked out how to get what he wants. And I definitely learned you don't mess with the Don. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) You've made many films in places like Brazil and throughout Africa and Asia and a number of films specifically about elephants. I'd love to hear like your take on conservation and just what conservation efforts you think are most effective at balancing the needs of humans to better their standards of living and protecting elephants so that they don't become extinct. Absolutely. I think the absolute key to all of this is to bring the local people with you. You cannot impose things on people and nor should you. Everybody has a right to live. Everybody has a right to a standard of living. Everybody wants to send their kids to school and have enough to eat. And you can't say to those people, I'm sorry, your standard of living has to go. Your life has to be completely curtailed to accommodate the wildlife. So if you're going to make any kind of conservation project work, any kind of sustainable conservation project work, you have to bring the local people with you. So the smartest conservation efforts are where you bring the local people with you, where they can see a tangible benefit to their lives by helping the wildlife. A lot of that comes down to education, and I don't mean because people are ignorant, absolutely not, they're very intelligent, but what they sometimes don't understand is the detail of the lifestyle of the elephant or the animal that you're trying to save. So sometimes it's just about educating people so they're not afraid of the animals anymore, they know how to be around them, They know what they need. They know what they don't like so that they can stay safe. And as I say, finding a way for both animals and people to live side by side and accommodate each other and respect each other's needs. And elephants are fantastic. They don't want to upset people. They don't want to hurt anybody. I mean, they could be so vengeful. Most of them have seen people killing their relatives, but they don't go around trying to kill us back. They're very forgiving, they're very understanding, and they try to accommodate us as much as they can. But sometimes it's just inevitable that there's going to be human-animal conflict. So bringing local people with you is the absolute only way to make conservation work, I believe. Finally, is there one secret of the elephants that you would like to know? There's a scene where Joyce Poole is talking about elephant language. And she's saying it's 25 different types of call. And sometimes you'll hear these calls going back and forward for an hour and they're shoving a conversation. And I would love to be able to understand more about how elephants talk to each other. What are they saying? What is it that they're communicating about? It's probably the same stuff that we would communicate about. Who's with you? Where are you going? Have you seen so-and-so? What should we do next? Where are we going for lunch? Where are we going for dinner? All of the stuff that you and I would probably want to talk about, but I'd love to know what they're saying. 
that would be, for me, the ultimate. And a lot of the noises they make, we can't even hear. They're you know, below our hearing. Yeah, infrasound. I'd just love to be able to decipher it. That would be the ultimate dream for me. Well, I think if elephants could talk, they would probably tell you how proud they were of your series and how they are portrayed with respect, dignity, admiration, and love. I really just want to thank you for being here today, Lucinda, and congratulate you on this remarkable, delightful, and deeply moving series. What a lovely thing to say, and thank you so much for saying that. That really makes me proud. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen that you think maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves? I've got a couple that I'd love to talk to you about. I'm going to take you back to 1994 and Blackpool, which is a seaside town in the north of England, and a wonderful documentary called Three Salons at the Seaside. It's about three hairdressing salons, which sounds like a very unprepossessing subject for a documentary. But it became a story of female solidarity and friendship through the trials of life in a very close-knit community in the north of England. And it's just beautifully observed. And it's a touching study of getting older, losing friends, losing family, losing partners. It's really a study of female friendship and widowhood and how you just got to keep going somehow. And, and it's warm, it's sweet, and it's beautifully observed. Philippa Lothorp is the director. The other hidden gem is the territory, which is basically the ongoing fight to stop deforestation in the Amazon. And it's about a group of indigenous people who are fighting to stop ranchers and settlers taking over their land. What's so moving about it is not just the struggle of the people whose land is being taken, the indigenous people, but trying to understand what motivates the settlers and the ranchers. So it's trying to give a balanced perspective. It does a pretty good job of that, even though it's quite hard to sympathize with the settlers. They are people and they have dreams and hopes, same as everyone else. It sort of reminded me somewhat of the struggle that elephants are having. They don't have a voice like these indigenous people do. And that's why people, filmmakers and conservationists, have to have a voice for the elephants as well. We have interviewed Alex Pritz, the director of the territory, and also regarding three salons at the seaside, we interviewed Seth Myers, Alex Buono, and Reese Thomas from Documentary Now. And there's a wonderful episode of that series, which pokes a little bit of fun, but also I think pays homage to that great documentary. I know about it, it's, it's wonderful. They hand around a bucket for a ransom because someone's been kidnapped again. It's very funny, very well observed.